This episode of The Dig is sponsored by our Patreon supporters and by Oxford University Press, which publishes a lot of excellent work, including books by guests on the show, like Corey Robbins' The Reactionary Mind. Instead of advertising mattresses and boxes of food, not that I dislike mattresses or boxes of food, we decided to advertise books that you might actually want to read, since you so often tune in to hear authors talking about the books they write. Today, I want to tell you about an Oxford title that you might find interesting— The Politics of Immigration, Partisanship, Demographic Change, and American National Identity by Tom K. Wong. Immigration policy is unique because it cuts to the heart of the we and we the people. With prevalent nativism and an uncertain future for immigration policy, Wong's book is important. Analyzing more than 30,000 congressional votes on immigration policy over a decade, Wong expertly examines the increasingly partisan divide over immigration, studies the role played by immigrant residents in shaping votes, and forecast the future of immigration reform. This book, which I read a few months back as part of the research I'm doing for my own book on immigration, also provides an excellent, concise overview of immigration politics and makes for a handy reference guide. The Politics of Immigration, Partisanship, Demographic Change, and American National Identity by Tom K. Wong. Out now from Oxford University Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. We've now had a black president, and for two terms. Black mayors had one office in big cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, D.C., Atlanta, San Francisco, New York, and Philadelphia years earlier. There are black CEOs and top-tier black pundits. A black man on the Supreme Court has long been amongst its most conservative members. But putting black faces in high places, scholar Kianga Yamada-Taylor argues, has not only failed to benefit the working class and poor black majority, it has actually harmed them by legitimating an individualistic, meritocratic narrative that blames poor black people's condition on their own personal failings. Now, Donald Trump, who ran the most brazenly racist major party presidential campaign in memory, is president. That's certainly bad news for black Americans, and Americans more generally. But as my guest, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, explains, Trump is not at the root of the crisis, but rather is one of its results. Taylor is a professor of African-American studies at Princeton and the author of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation from Haymarket Books. Kianga, welcome to The Dig. Thank you very much. Very glad to be here. Van Jones famously called Trump's election the product of a white lash, meaning, I think, a backlash to the growing population of people of color on the one hand and their social economic advancement. Do you agree with that assessment? No. um, I thought it was one of the more uh, perhaps viscerally simplistic. And, you know, I'm willing to concede that it was the the night of the election or shortly thereafter um, when we perhaps were not all at our clearest. Um, But I do think that it's a little bit um, of a simplistic uh, attempt to analyze what happened with the election for a couple of reasons. One is that um, on one level, it just doesn't make any sense, uh, which is to say that 
um, if there is an assumption that the election of Trump is somehow revenge for uh, the particular role that uh, people of color, primarily African-Americans, played in um, electing Barack Obama, um, then it doesn't make much sense of the, you know, the tens of millions of people who voted for Obama, not once, but twice. Um, so there's that. Uh, but then I think the, the more uh, troubling part of it is that it really does feed into this uh, erroneous narrative that somehow um, Barack Obama's uh, presidency um, was came, you know, was a benefit to African-Americans um, and that it was a it was a benefit uh, to, to black people that came at the particular expense of uh, of ordinary white people, and I just think that that um, is a is a really unfortunate, uh, if not terrible, misreading um, of what the last eight years were uh, about. Because really, when we look at what the actual Obama uh, presidency did mean to African Americans, you can see, you know, eight years later, black unemployment is still uh, twice the rate of white unemployment. Um, 38% of black children live in poverty. 55% of black um, workers make under $15 an hour, the overwhelming majority of them being black women. Um, I mean, you can go down, you know, down the list uh, of uh, persisting inequities uh, that continue to shape and define um, African-American life uh, even after not just the, the rise of Obama, but really uh, the highest sort of concentration of black political power in, in American history. So, um, you know, I think that all of that is to say that I think that we have to have a more sort of com- complicated understanding of what happened um, in the election and, and not just see it simply through the lens of, of racial backlash, but uh, race in this country is always uh, tightly wound with um, economic issues, economic distress. It's very difficult uh, to disentangle those two. And, and people have tried uh, very hard to suggest that it was either race or class in um, the, the debacle of the, the presidential election. And um, I just I think that we have to look at how those uh, issues reinforce each other. Um, and we're both, uh, complicit in the election of Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, that's a really important point, I think, because since Trump first emerged as a leading candidate, there's this liberal trope that the leftist analysis, uh, uh, is apologizing for racism by making the argument that making an argument that places racism in political, economic and historical context some commentators argue that the election is just about race and not economics, as if the two are not uh, inextricably interrelated. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like a telling reflection of the neoliberal worldview that many liberals want to believe that racism has no context. It's not just a, a neoliberal worldview. It's also it's a particular way that race has historically been understood, I think, um, in the in the United States on a in a formal capacity, which is that um, the, the basically there the, the issue of of race has complicated 
um, the meaning of uh, America and what the United States is supposed to uh, represent um, from its inception. And there have been um, uh, there's been a constant struggle over um, how to define and understand uh, its role in American life. Um, And I think that what we're witnessing is just another um, iteration of that. And so uh, for liberals, meaning people who can identify um, particular problems in the political and social and economic order in the United States, but not not necessarily systemic problems, perhaps superficial um, problems that they believe that can be changed, then uh, there's a reluctance to really um, uh, grasp the systemic aspect uh, or nature um, of not just race, but class inequality um, in the United States. And so there's a tendency to see um, racism as uh, attitudinal or uh, as, as the result of a, a deficit of experience, understanding, um, or uh, uh, just, you know, basic comprehension. Um, and so I think that what that means is that there's a tendency to, uh, you know, it, it means on the one hand that, uh, there's a tendency to, um, see race as something that you can either be talked out of, or you can be, um, educated out of, or that, you know, if these, things are uh, sort of exposed that that in and of itself uh, will take care of the, will take care of the problem. And then there's also a, um, uh, a way of uh, understanding race that if it's not explicit, um, then there's a question as to whether or not that is really what is taking, uh, if, if racism is really what is taking place. And so, I think that for the left, or at least the part of the left that I identify with, um, is that there is an understanding that uh, race in many ways is constitutive um, uh, of of American democracy, and that, um, you know, this is a country founded on uh, the genocide of its indigenous population uh, that built its wealth uh, through the um, brutal uh, subjugation of, uh, black slave labor and that perpetuated, uh, that wealth, um, hundreds of millions of times over through the violent expropriation of, uh, multiple waves of immigrant labor. And so it's in that context, it's almost impossible, um, to understand the dynamic of race without understanding, uh, its correlation, um, to class. And so even in, you know, the most contemporary of politics, um, this, this kind of, uh, duality and relationship, um, persists. I mean, Donald Trump, there's no coincidence that, uh, his kind of over the top, uh, vitriol directed at immigrants, um, at, uh, Arabs and Muslims, and at African-Americans through his sort of obtuse um, description of the, quote-unquote, the Blacks, the inner city, um, and his <laughs> grueling uh, law and order, um, the phrase at every opportunity that he can get. 
that that comes in combination and concert uh, with a, a, a completely draconian um, austerity driven uh, budget. Um, and it's, it's really to help narrate uh, why this sort of budget um, is necessary, that we have to uh, redirect resources to police uh, personnel, law enforcement, and all of its capacities, um, because our inner cities have turned into veritable jungles run by um, black and uh, uh, Mexican gangbangers, rapists, and people who are generally out of control. And we have to redirect um, tens of billions of dollars uh, from uh, domestic spending uh, to foreign policy uh, to war against um, the crazed Muslim terrorist. And so you can't actually argue for the type of budget that he is putting forward um, without uh, a deeply uh, uh, racist um, sort of characterization of the world um, as a necessity for it. And so this is, you know, this is like uh, a, a particular pattern um, in American politics, I think, in American history that I think we can chart, um, uh, you know, far back into the, 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 the history of the United States. You've argued, I, if I have it right, that racism is sometimes not so much, in some cases, a function of individual white people's power, but rather the opposite in the sense that the wages are of whiteness or the privileges and benefit that people receive just for being white are for many working class and poor white people becoming incredibly thin amidst um, economic crisis. Is mm-hmm. is that right? Well, I think that the whole framework of, of privilege is, is really problematic um, because I think that it reduces issues of power, of control and authority um, to individual difference, which is to say that it's almost as if everything that is different about uh, groups of people is then sort of dubbed as uh, as a privilege. So that if you're able-bodied and someone else is not, um, then your able-bodiedness becomes a privilege. Uh, If you're uh, cisgendered um, and someone else is not, then that difference is transformed into uh, a privilege. And it's not to say that um, there is not oppression. Um, You know, I think the understanding of uh, oppression is deeply rooted in, um, you know, the Marxist tradition. Uh, For certain, uh, Lenin talked about uh, special oppression, that the working class in general uh, was, was oppressed, Um, And that oppression manifested itself in terms of a complete and utter inability to control um, the most fundamental aspects of uh, your life and existence. So it's a total absence of self-determination, which is how I define what freedom is, the ability to determine the course um, of your life uh, without coercion, coercion either being physical force um, or things like poverty uh, and other uh, factors that control um, your ability to um, intervene on your own behalf. And so there was an understanding that the working class itself 
was oppressed, but that there were people within the working class um, who, who faced uh, uh, additional oppression because of uh, factors that perhaps they did not control, whether it was gender, uh, whether it was race, ethnicity, uh, religion, uh, national status. Um, and so I think that there, you know, has, is, a, is a sort of long tradition um, of an understanding that um, oppression absolutely uh, exists. And in fact, oppression is central um, to the perpetuation of, of capitalism. Um, but there's a difference between recognizing uh, the existence of oppression um, uh, that, that, that changes individual working class people's experience in the world, um, which is to say that the, experience, the experiences of uh, working class black women are not the same as they are for uh, working class white men. They're dramatically different. Um, they, uh, uh, because of the, 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 the compounding uh, impacts of multiple um, oppressions, it makes for, um, in many ways, a harsher outcome uh, for, for black working class women. Uh, but the absence of those particular oppressions experienced by, by black women, the absence of those um, in the life of a, a white working class man, I don't think necessarily uh, equates into um, this thing that we call uh, pri privilege. Um, now, I obviously think that um, there are, as I just said, dramatic differences in the life experiences of um, you know, people who are racially and ethnically oppressed in this country and those um, who are not, uh, and that, that the absence of that oppression um, can also shape the, the, the worldview of those who don't suffer from it. Um, but that, to me, is, you know, and you can take in account that it then means that people have uh, certain advantages uh, that are relative within a specific context. Um, but I think that the constant parsing um, uh, of, of difference and then uh, uh, elevating that difference into an issue of, of privilege um, means that it, it leaves us somewhat incapable then of explaining uh, what the difference then is between the experiences of working class people and the elite. Um, and I compare that in some ways to the casual way in which uh, white supremacy um, has been used uh, uh, among the sort of broad, um, the broad left in the United States. And so, <clears throat> you know, in some, in some sense, there's a, a sort of common sense aspect to that. Uh, for some people, they think that it has more rigor than just identifying uh, someone or something as racist. They think that that is a way of uh, of uh, connecting it to a system of oppression. And I'm, I'm sympathetic uh, with that idea. But it creates a problem when you actually when you have actual white supremacists in the government. Um, if everything is white supremacy, then how are you defining uh, what exists in the White House now? Um, and so, yeah, how do you account for Steve yeah, Bannon <laughs> or, or Donald Trump, for that matter? Um, and so, I think that um, 
you know, it's not to be pedantic, but it is to uh, sort of be able to identify um, what real sources of oppression are um, and where they come from. And I don't think they just come from the differences that exist between ordinary people, but that we have to locate um, uh, uh, oppression and, and power and class relations um, and authority. And, I, you know, that's, that's sort of the way that I, I try to understand uh, those concepts. It seems that another problem with the concept of white privilege is a, is a more pragmatic, strategic one, which is that, um, you know, while many white people are in many ways not very, quote-unquote, privileged at all, um, one need only look at the climbing white mortality rate to see that, um, but, but that it can really backfire in the sense that I think most people, most white people, most people generally maybe, aside from guilt-wracked, college-educated white liberals, like the idea of being privileged and having a little bit of power in the world. So it seems like arguing that white people benefit from the current system, the current setup, generally speaking, might not be very helpful. Do you think it might be more politically powerful to try to convince white working class people instead that they are oppressed and have a shared interest in in changing things? Well, I actually think it has the opposite um, impact. I don't, I think that most um, ordinary white people, um, I mean, this, you know, this is my impression based on, um, my relationships with people and, you know, my experience as an activist over a long period of time. Um, I think most white people, ordinary white people don't think they have power over anything and certainly don't think that they're privileged in any uh, capacity. And I think that um, the insistence that they are um, has, uh, you know, has a negative impact in, in, in the sense that, um, yeah, it makes it. I think it probably makes it seem uh, uh, that the sort of broader left um, has no sort of um, sympathy, empathy, understanding uh, of what it's like to be a sort of ordinary working class person um, in 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 our society, and so and that is not. I mean, the thing is that's frustrating about these conversations is that um, then people immediately assume that you are um, downplaying uh, or ignoring the significance of race. And so I think that um, racism is, is real. It's pervasive um, that uh, it is um, probably uh, quite rooted in um the, the sort of experiences and outlook of most white people. The issue for me is, so the issue for me is not whether or not white people in general or working class white people are, are racist. Um, I assume that um, most people are. The issue is whether or not it's immutable, um, whether or not that it is just a set of ideas that are cast in stone um, never to be uh, uh, changed, um, and that that is what becomes a problem um, for me because that that's just anti-historical. It makes no sense in 
um, in real life. It's like people's ideas are constantly uh, shaped by all sorts of things. They're constantly um, uh, in flux, which is the only way we can even understand any sense of progress uh, in American history uh, more generally. And so I think that we have a situation where it's actually in the interest of ordinary white people and ordinary black people um, to be joined in struggle together and, and Latinos and, you know, basically the, what, what we sort of roughly calculate as the 99% um, give or take, you know, this or that percentage. And the issue is how does the, how does 1% of the population maintain such control and authority over uh, a massive, massive opposition? Um, and, and to me, that comes down to what many consider to be simplistic, um, but which I, I, I think is, is quite um, profound and true, which is a strategy of, of divide and conquer. Um, a deliberate strategy of deploying racism systematically to undermine the struggles of ordinary people. Um, and even if it's not to undermine a particular struggle, uh, it is constantly to sow division. And so one of the uh, examples I always use to explain this um, dynamic is uh, the the way in which uh, welfare um, as an entitlement for poor people was ended in this country. So last year's 2016, the 20th anniversary of Bill Clinton signing the Work and Personal Responsibility Act, uh, which ended welfare as an entitlement. And so when Bill Clinton signed that legislation, there was a huge um, ceremony in the Rose Garden of the White House. Um, and at that ceremony, Clinton surrounded himself uh, with several black women who had been on welfare. Well, what Clinton probably knew, but what most people probably did not know, was that at that time, the majority of people receiving welfare were white women. Um, but there was no point in bringing white women uh, to that ceremony, because the whole impetus for ending welfare was the basis that this was a program for undeserving, primarily black women uh, who were mainly interested in having babies um, and living off the dole and, and getting something for nothing. And so bringing a bunch of black women to the signing ceremony kind of fulfilled that idea. But the impact of that legislation didn't just dramatically affect the lives of black women. It also dramatically affected the lives of working class white women who were, who were the majority of people who were dependent. Um, on welfare. And that's the way racism um, in a sort of quote-unquote colorblind society operates. So when they use the, the political establishment um, in a bipartisan way, uses ranked racism as a way to sell the police, to sell its judicial system, and to sell the concept of law and order. It has a disproportionate impact on black people uh, who are then disproportionately policed, disproportionately um, imprisoned. But to spend $80 billion a year to maintain this system has an impact in the lives of all working class people, um, both in terms of where that money 
could go that could actually improve the quality of people's lives, but also through the normalization of violence, uh, the normalization of policing, the normalization of living in a society that locks up uh, a huge percentage of its population compared to the to the rest of the world. Um, and so you can see the way that racism has a particular impact in the lives of non-white people, um, but it also has a cascading impact uh, in the lives of, of white people as well. And so that's, you know, it's again to reiterate why these things have to be um, looked at uh, uh, together, but also it under, for me, it underlines the reality of why uh, there isn't, that, that ordinary white people have an interest um, in the struggle against a society uh, that has those types of priorities um, in the first place. And whether or not white people realize that um, is, a, is a question of consciousness. It's not uh, a, an, an issue that is cast in stone that because you are white that you can't realize that any more so than the assumption uh, that somehow just because you're not white um, that you have a uh, particular revolutionary consciousness. I mean, I do think that um, black people in particular, much more so um, than even immigrant populations, uh, uh, are historically more left-wing, more progressive, and more liberal, because that is what happens when you come of age in a society that has you have zero expectations of it, and it has zero expectations of you. There was an attempt to transform that at the end of the 1960s to uh, integrate a layer of Black people into American society uh, to create the illusion of social mobility and uh, to create a, a kind of uh, version of the American dream for Black people. Um, and so there, there was an intention uh, to do that, but it's very it's very tenuous uh, when you have a black middle class um, that exists in a very tenuous way, um, whose housing and whose careers, um, you know, sort of thinly e exist or they exist on on thin ice. Then it it can be a hard concept uh, to sell, but having a more sort of liberal disposition. Uh, a more skeptical disposition um, does not in and of itself give you the confidence to fight. It doesn't give you the expectation that you can win. And all of these are necessary um, to get people from the recognition that there is something wrong, that there is inequality um, to actually doing something about it. And so none of these things are automatic and, you know, none of these things, um, will sort of resolve themselves. I mean, this is why uh, we talk about the need to rebuild uh, a left, a political left that engages in politics and debates and actually puts forward a vision of what it is that we want and not just an identification of what we think uh, the issue or the problem is. Um, and so those are, you know, those are how I see the relationship between those things. Hey, this is Dan Denver. You might recognize me from such podcasts as the one you were just listening to. I want to thank you, the listeners, for supporting us on Patreon. 
I'm a journalist who has spent the last decade covering politics, criminal justice, and immigration at the local and national level. Your support makes it possible for me to do this new podcast venture as a part-time job and to pay all the lovely people who help me out. If you haven't already, please go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and look up The Dig. Five bucks a month is a huge help. That's roughly the equivalent of either five McDonald's coffees, one pour-over, 0.004 ounces of Glenn Beck's gold, or zero of the bitcoins that the libertarians who don't listen to the show are hoarding to spend on Peter Thiel's island. Your support helps me buy the peanut butter and pay the rent that I need to play my humble role in building socialist politics in the United States. And we have loads of socialist swag on offer. So check it out, patreon.com. Thank you, and back to the show. Your book opens with a quote from Frederick Douglass, who said that the limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. Um, Today, struggle is on the upswing, both amongst uh, black Americans and Americans more generally. To what do you credit the upsurge in struggle, um, which dates back probably to the Obama administration? Mm -hmm. And to what do you credit the relative political calm in black America and the left left politics more generally during the decades that preceded? Well, I think there there are multiple reasons. Um, I think more recently... Um, I mean, I talk about in my book uh, the relationship uh, or linkage between um, the disappointment of black millennials and the rise in, in, in the administration of Barack Obama and the rise of Black Lives Matter um, and a, a sort of belief that, um, you know, people believed Obama, they campaigned for Obama. Um, they, you know, thought that the election of Obama would actually transform um, conditions for Black people um, in the United States. And when that didn't happen, um, I think it not only created uh, sort of deep wells of disillusionment, but it created a a wave of anger um, as well. Uh, And that in combination with the persistence of, you know, whether it's police violence, whether it is the sort of uh, daily uh, grind of, you know, unemployment, underemployment, under-resourced public institutions um, that kind of uh, define much of African-American life in this country, um, that sort of um, produced a different kind of consciousness, one that uh, rejected, at least as a total solution, the idea that we can just elect these problems away, Uh, the idea that uh, electoral politics alone was a way to solve this. Um, And it it created the space for a a different kind of of consciousness. uh, and the confidence to to do something, some out of necessity. I think that uh, one of the reasons why um, Ferguson exploded in the particular way that it did was uh, because of the recent history um, people had there with 
a police force that was becoming um, more and more sort of disconnected or unmoored from any concept that they were acting um, as a sort of uh, impartial um, uh, state agency that uh, was there to do a particular job. I mean, it became clear, it certainly became clear with the, the Department of Justice report on Ferguson that there was a kleptocracy um, in the uh, county seat and that their, um, uh, you know, stormtroopers, if you will, uh, were the police. Um, and so the public execution of Mike Brown um, and then the transformation of that execution, that police killing into a lynching by leaving his body um, uncovered and exposed for over four hours, um, signaled to young people uh, in, in, in Ferguson, I think, that um, this is, you know, that there's no longer any pretense that the police are public servants, um, that the, these are actually... I have the capacity to transform um, into death squads. And if you don't do something about it, um, then this stuff with Mike Brown, this, this is going to become a regular uh, occurrence. And so, you know, so those, there were particular dynamics there, but that, that could be located um, in, in cities across the country, which is why uh, the movement uh, was able to generalize so quickly from a kind of local uh, attempt to get a cop indicted into um, a national uproar uh, about police abuse and violence and the inability um, for the states, the most powerful state, most powerful government um, on the planet uh, to rein its, its police. Um, and so I think that is part of the context. But I think, you know, even... I don't think that dynamic was just um, relegated to black communities. I think that uh, there's a tremendous amount of overlap between um, young white people who worked on Obama's campaign in 2008 um, and the explosion of the Occupy movement. Um, and again, the idea that people are believed and not even, you know, reluctantly, but believe that Obama uh, would be a breach with this kind of um, sort of continuation of uh, a devastating neoliberal order from uh, the Clinton regime of the 90s um, into the, the, the Bush, just like the Nana Republic and the, the way in which, um, you know, the country is dragged into an illegal war. Uh, in 2003, um, there is the collective shrug of the federal government um, in the face of the Hurricane Katrina catastrophe, and New Orleans is allowed to drown because it is a black city. And then the 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 near collapse of the United States and then global economy in 2007 uh, and 2008. Um, and so, you know, Obama was politically adept at at uh, figuring out which way the wind was blowing and crafted a campaign that responded to that 
um, and tapped into the desperate um, uh, desire for change uh, that was pervasive throughout the country um, and exploited it uh, all the way to the all the way to the White House, but with big expectations and big hope come even bigger disappointment with the failure to deliver um, on any of the things that he promised to uh, follow through on. And so I think that that um, was part of the the sort of underlying factors and um, different stages of a radicalization uh, that has unfolded. Um, You know, people charted in in different ways. I know in my book, I talk about the importance of the campaign around Oscar Grant. Um, You know, but there were things that I I didn't talk about, like the the struggle in Wisconsin um, and the the impact of the Arab Spring um, in American politics. It was sort of overlapping with what was happening um, in Wisconsin. And then, you know, you have Occupy, um, the struggle around the 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 trying to uh, stop the execution of Troy Davis, uh, both of which create the conditions for um, a movement to emerge uh, against the murder of Trayvon Martin and the the sort of uh, judicial misconduct, the police misconduct that was bound up in that, um, the the infusion of. Uh, the Malcolm X uh, grassroots movement and their uh, reporting on police brutality and their report on uh, every 28 hours uh, a black person is killed by um, a cop or someone in relationship to the state. Um, And then Michelle Alexander's book, uh, which comes out, The New Jim Crow, which is kind of narrating um, and explaining this entire political um, period that uh, you know, a, a generation of young people um, and people going into their 30s and 40s have come of age in. Uh, and so all of these things work together, I think, to uh, create the conditions for uh, the emergence of uh, a, a political movement. I mean, the, the, the complicating factor, of course, is that it's happening uh, in the context of a fractured divided and politically inept left, um, which means truly, which means that um, it, which means that there's, there's not a lot of relationship between different um, organizing, although there are, you know, there are attempts to do that. I, I think people are trying to overcome that deficit, but that it means that the movement starts on a, a, a on a certain level um, and has to uh, develop and politically mature and gain some experience and go through some, some things um, in order to sort of get to the point uh, that will be necessary to um, challenge this particular kind of uh, administration. And so I think that if we look at the, the last um, 40 years, uh, and try to understand, well, you know, you can understand what happened to the movement, the black movement being the most important movement of the 1960s. You have the deliberate efforts of uh, the political establishment to redirect uh, black politics into the Democratic Party, to remake the Democratic Party um, as a, quote, 
legitimate arena um, for for activism and for politics um, as opposed to uh, the streets or an insurgent radical um, politics. Uh, but the point was to move from uh, protest into formal um, politics. So you have you know, what some have described as a as, as co-optation of the movement in that sense. And then you have the uh, creation of, of outlets for the development of um, a small uh, but important um, black middle class. Uh, so, you know, black people can, you know, now buy homes. You end redlining in the late 1960s and, and, and 70s to allow black people to become homeowners to... Um, open up the pathways for African-Americans to, uh, to go to college, uh, open, open up the civil service uh, so that African-Americans um, can get stable um, middle-class jobs, that you essentially give people uh, a stake in the society, which, you know, 500,000 people participating in urban armed uprisings um, throughout the middle 60s was indicative that people, in fact, were not invested um, in the system and were locked out of it. And then you have the sort of brutal physical repression uh, of the movement itself, um, where black activists are uh, jailed, exiled, or killed um, by the federal government. Um, and then you combine that with the sort of ramping up of, of law and order, you grease the wills to mass incarceration. Um, and then politically, uh, you help to sort of um, really roll back and undermine all of the, the kind of um, structural logics that uh, emerge from the 1960s, where Stokely Carmichael gives us the language of institutional racism to understand uh, what has happened to black communities. Even, even things that, you know, characterizations I don't necessarily agree with, but the idea that African-Americans were an internal colony in the United States, even, even if you don't agree with it, what it was is, is a way of giving a structure and form and, and roots to black uh, disenfranchisement, to black um, inequality, uh, when others were describing these phenomena uh, as products of defective culture, uh, as products of um, moral uh, lapses, that sort of thing. And so... Um, but in the, the 1970s, you begin to see the retreat from this because uh, basically, if you identify structural inequality, then that in and of itself demands a structural uh, response to that. If, however, you can transform that narrative into one of personal irresponsibility uh, as, as the main feature of black oppression and black inequality, then that calls for personal transformation. That doesn't call for any type of robust public policy. And so you put all of those things together, uh, it has a depressing impact on um, political organizing and political uh, activism. That there, you know, there are episodic uh, uh, sort of outbursts that pierce um, that general uh, political framework, whether it's the Los Angeles Rebellion in 1992, whether it's the emergent um, uh, global justice movement at the end of the 1990s, uh, and that along with that uh, was an emergent movement against racial profiling. It's the time when that freeze comes into popularity, all of which is destroyed and wiped out 
but the terrorist attacks on September uh, 11th, 2001. Um, and you literally have uh, to re to go through that process again um, of rebuilding uh, those networks, that consciousness, that confidence uh, that was beginning to come together at the end of Clinton's reign in the 1990s. And so we are now sort of um, seeing the, the long uh, revival um, of, of that, uh, those, that political awakening um, that was beginning to come together at the end of the, the 1990s. It's, it's not as if it, it's just picking up from that, but that it's, it, it, these things never disappear completely. They can be driven underground. And then that, that sort of consciousness and reaction, because there's no space for it, uh, when, when there's a war on terror. And so you, but, but the, the basis of it is still there, but then you have, uh, 15 years of new garbage that is heaped on top of it. Um, and so in that sense, you get perhaps, uh, an even deeper, uh, radicalization, but that is still, uh, emerging within the context of a left that is not yet in a position to give it any direction, um, and so we're, I, I say all that to say that we're at the very beginning of, of this process. And it's important to know whether you're at the beginning or the end of something. Um, but we're, we're at the beginning of, of that. And you can see uh, that, you know, the radicalization is, is quite deep. Uh, even if we're, you can look at Black Lives Matter, Occupy, you know, even things like the, the fact that DSA uh, Democratic Socialists of America has 20,000 members. All of these things point to that. Um, and so, you know, there's no sort of getting around uh, the rebuilding of the left. And it doesn't mean that uh, it's a slow one by one uh, numeric process. Um, it's something that can happen in leaps and bounds. I think that we saw in the um, immediate aftermath of the inauguration, that in fact, the day after the inauguration of Trump, you know, three to four million people come out in protest. It's something that I think people have have taken for granted um, as as something that happened, but that this is completely unprecedented in the annals of American history, and so that is is something that can be built on and built on quite quickly. So we're not talking about, I don't believe, a decades-long process of, of what it means to rebuild uh, the left, but that, you know, even if that's true, people will still have to learn how to do some things, get some experience, and go through some, some things um, before, you know, we're, we're really actually able to, in a systematic way, um, take on the political and economic establishment in this country. You've written that the most significant transformation in all of black life over the last 50 years has been the emergence of a black elite bolstered by the black political class that has been responsible for administering cuts and managing meager budgets on the backs of black constituents. This analysis provides a pretty trenchant challenge to conventional notions of black progress. Why has... The, what has the rise of this black elite meant for most black people, and why do you think it's uh, the most significant transformation over the last half century? Well, because I think that um, previously 
um, you know, there's always been sort of class division uh, amongst African Americans that expresses itself has expressed itself in various ways. Most most people talk about its expression through uh, things like the the what's referred to as the politics of respectability, um, which is the idea that if you sort of um, perform uh, middle class norms, that uh, that is a way to become integrated into uh, uh, wider society. Um, and to live a normal life. And so those tensions have always um, been there. Uh, But what's different over the last uh, uh, 50 years is that when you combine those uh, conventions uh, of personal responsibility and conservatism uh, with actual political power, um, and a platform to espouse them on. And so I, you know, I think that uh, it was in, in some ways the, the political establishment had to open up uh, its doors to, um, uh, to, to black politics. You know, and some, some did that willing, willingly, some had to have the doors kicked in. So in a place like Philadelphia with Frank Rizzo or uh, Chicago with um, Harold Washington and challenging the Daily Machine. But it had to be done nonetheless because one of the antagonisms uh, in uh, the American cities, which kept resulting in uh, these you know, these annual uh, rebellions and uprisings, was that you had Black uh, majority populations ruled um, by white political machines that were still relying um, on patronage um, relationships that meant that uh, white people held a disproportionate advantage in political power in the cities that were um, increasingly black as, as uh, out-migration uh, of white people took them into suburban areas. Um, and so that was a... a sort of flagrant antagonism um, in, in black communities that would express itself uh, through these annual conflagrations. Um, and so there was the, the belief, you know, that if you have African-Americans govern the cities, that that will have a calming effect on them, that let a black political establishment manage uh, municipal fiscal crises, um, not uh, uh, white people. Um, and I think that that strategy was, was largely effective. To me, the, the best example of that is someone like Wilson Good, who's the mayor of uh, Philadelphia, um, and he's elected mayor in 1985, and, um, or I, I think 1983, and literally drops a bomb on a black countercultural organization called Moves um, in a, in a police raid and kills 11, you know, uh, 11 people, including I think five or six children. And then he's reelected two years later. And so they dropped the bomb in 85, he's reelected in 87. And so the idea that a white mayor uh, could drop a bomb 
on a black political organization and politically live to tell um, is crazy, but a black man could do it. And so that to me sort of captures um, the, the sort of disorienting and disorganizing impact that black political officials um, in the last uh, you know, 40 or so years um, have had, while at the same time being sort of in this position to uh, continue to articulate uh, this kind of culture of poverty, personal responsibility framework as a way to understand black poverty um, and black inequality. I mean, uh, Mayor, Mayor Michael, Mayor Michael, pull up your pants, uh, Nutter. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, Barack Obama was the sort of master um, of this in terms of using his very public bully pulpit anytime, you know, before, before the rise of Black Lives Matter, um, any public sort of pronouncements around uh issues involving uh, the condition of black communities. Um, you know, he helped to really preserve the space where you could talk about uh, black parenting, um, black morality, or a lack thereof, um, black work ethic, uh, those sorts of things, black parenting as a way to understand what was happening um, in black communities in a very destructive uh, way, I would, I would argue. Um, and so this has been this sort of impact of the emergence of this black political class. It hasn't been greater opportunities for working class black people, uh, greater jobs, uh, less police brutality, greater uh, and better housing. It hasn't been any of that. It has been uh, really a an ability to, to quiet and tamp down um, the emergence of any struggles around these issues until, of course, um, the rise of Black Lives Matter and most demonstrably the explosion in Baltimore um, in April of 2015, which, you know, really, in I, I think it, it symbolically, rhetorically, um, has sort of closed that idea that, as I term it in my book, that black faces in high places um, can resolve the issues ex- experienced um, uh, by ordinary black people. Because when you have a black mayor and and really a black, a largely black-run city, a black police chief. Uh, a black uh, director of the Board of Education, half the city council is black. Indeed, half of the police officers picked up and beat Frey Gray to death uh, were African-American. And then when Baltimore exploded, the black woman who was the mayor of the city called a black woman who was a commander of a National Guard unit um, to mobilize uh, her to come to Baltimore to put down a rebellion led by young black people. Um, and so to me, that sort of crystallized the, um, the, the logical conclusion of that uh, strategy. And it's not to say that that strategy um, of, you know, this sort of fake racial solidarity to get black people elected 
will go away, uh, but it can no longer sort of be introduced as uh, the key to solving um, uh, urban uh, black working class distress in cities or suburbs, uh, for that matter, which most black people live in now. Um, that, in a way that that was articulated at the end of the 1960s, um, the idea that well, if we just control the, the the places that we live, then that will give us a chance. It made total sense. I mean, who could argue with that? Well, you can't make that argument but it was, now. And it was at the very same moment that capital, that wealth was being relocated into segregated suburbs. And mm-hmm. so it was sort of a, a, a Pyrrhic victory as well. And you hear on the right all the time, especially, look at these black governed cities. Right. And it seems like the the rise of, of black faces in high places you've written did also a lot of work to legitimate the dominant ideology of colorblindness, the notion that we live in a post-racial society, um, which really the end point of it is uh, things like Chief Justice Roberts ruling mm-hmm. against um, school desegregation by saying the way to stop discriminating against race is to stop discriminating against race or something like that. Yes. And that we've changed. as a, as a Well, he said that around uh, getting voting rights. Um, I mean, the, the, the thing I, I try to bring across with colorblindness is that it's not just about um, the behavior of this or that individual and whether or not they acknowledge uh, race as a factor, um, but that it was really a, a political effort uh, to really um, undermine uh, the the politics that the central politics that come out of the 1960s that black inequality and oppression is structural uh, that it is built into um, American capitalism into the American system itself and thus demands uh, a, a structural response on all levels. I mean, that's really what the war on poverty and the Great Society programs were responding to, um, not just the altruistic impulses of uh, Lyndon Johnson, but it was in response to uh, Black demands that shaped the discussion. So the 1963 March on Washington is the march for for jobs and freedom. And so there's a way in which the uh, responses um, are having to keep up with uh, the, the, the multiple issues that are being raised uh, as explanations for uh, what is happening in Black communities. And so, you know, there's a, a, a systematic, I would argue, effort um, to under to undo this um, over the course of the 1970s is is to uh, look at the devolution um, of American cities and uh, rising crime rates and rising drug use um, and the the persistence of um, poverty even after uh, what they like to say the billions tens of billions that were spent. Um, in great society programs to basically say, look, we've done all of this and, and the cities are still uh, falling apart. This must be something beyond the control of government, um, beyond the capacity of uh, public programs, uh, that this is about a defective people 
um, whether whether they're black, whether they're Puerto Rican, whatever they are, they have issues that they need to figure out um, and work out. And so, you know, that's a very attractive um, argument uh, at a time when um, people's taxes are are going up uh, because uh, the business class um, has demanded um, an end to the taxation of them, uh, and that you know we're we're going to uh, tax ordinary people, um, not you know not corporate America, and so it feeds a it fed a kind of common sense about uh, what was happening um, in the U.S. Uh, and then, you know, became a way to help um, undermine the sort of weak but important anti-poverty uh, programs that came of age in the in the 1960s, um, and all could be done without ever uttering uh, race or uh, any racial uh, epithets. And so that, you know, I mean, it's part of what is really important about Stokely Carmichael's intervention um, around institutional racism as well, because it deliberately talks about how it's actually not about the intent of the individuals. Uh, It's about the outcome. And that if we want to understand whether the presence of racial inequality is among us, we can't base it on what people say. We have to base it on what they do and what the outcomes are, um, which I still think is, is is quite important, especially in a society where people have been trained uh, to stay away from uh, racialized commentary. Uh, we can't we can't use that as the barometer uh, of determining uh, whether or not race is. Um, is is being invoked or, or being used. So those are, you know, that's what uh, I, I think are the, the consequences of that. This episode of The Dig is sponsored by our Patreon supporters and by Oxford University Press. Another Oxford book that I think Dig listeners might find interesting is The Making of Black Lives Matter, A Brief History of an Idea by Christopher J. LeBron. LeBron traces the historical roots of the Black Lives Matter movement and argues for a renewed focus on equal dignity in society, not just equal rights. The Making of Black Lives Matter, A Brief History of an Idea by Christopher J. LeBron, out now from Oxford University Press. Hey, this is Bosco Sankara, editor of Jacobin. Uh, I know everyone has a podcast these days, but the Dig and Dan Denver are really, really good. And Dan needs your help to help pay the people who work on the show and uh, reproduce their labor power. And as every Marxist knows, it's very important. Uh, to support this show, go to patreon.com and look up The Dig. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Thanks, and I uh, hope you enjoy the show. How does today's struggle compare to and draw from the movements of the 60s and 70s? Oh, I think, I mean, it depends on, on when in the, in, the, in the 60s. I mean, I think that today, as, as I said before, um, we're at the very beginning of developing the kind of uh, networks and organizations that'll be necessary um, to, you know, take on the, the political 
uh, establishment. And so, you know, that process played itself out in the late 1950s and early 60s um, as well. I mean, one of the consequences uh, in the U.S. constantly is this lack of organizational continuity. And so from one period of uh, upsurge to the uh, to the next. So in the, the 1930s, you know, you have a very um, intense anti-communist uh, or communist movement um, that, you know, has all sorts of different trends and tendencies that's deeply rooted in working class organization um, and, and struggle uh, that is systematically rooted out um, in the 1940s and 50s through um, McCarthyism, with the, probably the one of the high points, at least, is the execution of the Rosenbergs in 1953. Um, and so it means that the, the, the left that comes of age in the 1960s is largely coming of age without the benefit and experience of those struggles of the 1930s. Of course, not completely. You know, everyone wasn't rooted out in the, in the, in the 1950s. Um, but in terms of big organizations, big organizational uh, understandings and conclusions that could be drawn from those struggles that they're 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 very difficult to to pick those threads up again, and so the same a similar dynamic takes place uh, at the end of of the 60s with the co-optation of part of the movement, uh, and then the brutal repression of the of of the other part of the movement is not just this sort of in, you know instinctive antipathy towards um, African Americans, but it's often the case that the ruling class has a much longer memory and understanding of, of the potential impact uh, of, of organizations and activists than, than we do. And so, um, you know, there was a, an understanding of the need to uh, crush those movements. I mean, there's a reason why Asada Shakur, who's, you know, 70 years old, is still on a, uh, some fucking terrorist list uh, with a $2 million bounty. It's not because she poses any threat to the U.S. government or the U.S. state, but the idea of Assata certainly does. And you can see that in the movements today where she um, has taken on a kind of iconic um, uh, status. And so in that sense, um, the, the absence of those linkages and, and connections, you know, means that we are starting from scratch to some degree and what it means to rebuild uh, the left. And that's not just a numeric question of, you know, well, if it weren't for that, we'd have this many people versus that many people. No, it, it's about politics. It's about uh, political debates having to be, uh, you know, one on a very basic level. Uh, you know, the main one for the American left being uh, the, the, the orientation uh, one has towards the Democratic Party. Um, and so, you know, there, there's tremendous experience uh, that, that people gained um, around these political debates in the, the 1960s that just don't exist um, uh, for the left uh, uh, today in this country. And so in terms of actual uh, struggle it, itself, you know, again, it would depend on uh, when we were talking about, you know, 1967, 68, 69 was the sort of um, high point of struggle in the post-war period. And we are, of course, nowhere um, in that hemisphere. Uh, but, you know, in terms of a similar process of radicalization that was taking place um, at the beginning of the, the 1960s, sort of um, evidenced by the 
the student um, uh, sit-in movement um, as a as a starting point. I mean, you could start with the Montgomery bus boycott uh, and those sorts of things. Yeah, it was about young people becoming radicalized um, and having a sense that they could actually challenge the system and being willing to do so. And so I certainly think that we see evidence um, uh, of that in, in, in quite a dramatic way. Um, but I would say they're not parallel because people actually, the experiences, even if they're not clearly enunciated or articulated through uh, organizations or through a quote-unquote left, um, that they they exist in the sense that there are no illusions that there's an American dream today in the same way that there was in the, the early 1960s. Um, people are deeply cynical about the United States, deeply cynical about the government and the state in a way that didn't exist then. And so that all has a historical cumulative um, impact, which probably means that ultimately um, there'll be a much deeper um, and broader uh, radicalization. Um, and whether or not that actually turns into a political challenge um, it has to do with politics and organization, uh, not just the recognition that um, there's inequality um, that is you know, sort of grossly uh, demonstrated by the state. One last question. I want to ask you about multi debates over multiracial organizing. Mm-hmm. Some Black Lives Matter groups um, seemingly drawing on on nationalist currents are mm-hmm. focusing organizing amongst black people and as a corollary, showing up for racial ju- justice or surge is organizing white people as allies. What's your mm-hmm. take on the role of this kind of organizing um, and versus multiracial organizing? I come from a political tradition that uh, absolutely uh, respects and defends the right of the oppressed to organize in whatever way that they determine is the most effective. And so if that means uh, that women demand to organize separately, uh, black people demand to organize separately, Latinos demand to organize separately, then um, I support their right to do so. but in saying that, it it doesn't mean that I think it's the most effective way um, to organize, uh, which I also think is important to say. Um, I think that, you know, there might be a, a period where people feel like um, they have to sort of gather themselves in that particular formation. But what I never hear is the basis upon which um, or the route through which we move from separate organizing uh, to uh, multiracial organizing. Um, And that, I think, has to be an important part of the discussion. Um, I mean, on one level, there's a basic issue of math. uh, And I, you know, talk some about this in my book that, Yes, it is true that when black people get free, everyone will get free, um, but black people cannot get free alone. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, the trajectory people think uh, they have to go on to get from 
uh, that sort of organizing to multiracial organizing. And I, I would just say that, um, you know, I think it is important to organize on a multiracial basis, not because it, it's easy or uh, anything like that. It's often difficult and frustrating um, as, you know, as, as really most organizing is. Um, but I, <laughs> I do sure. think, yeah, no, it, it really, you know, that's why it's called struggle, <laughs> not because it's easy, you know. Um, but if we're going to build a mass movement, which I think is necessary to be able to confront the um, political and economic establishment uh, in this country, then we will have to take up that uh, we will have to take up that challenge. And, you know, I think a lot of the resistance to it is really based um, in this cynical idea uh, about the sort of, you know, um, the idea that people, people are impervious to change, that their ideas are static um, and that, you know, we just simply can't work together. And I just think that that, is anti-historical and it may be borne out in some people's experiences, but, you know, we have to challenge each other and we have to, you know, learn how to um, sort of overcome those kinds of, of uh, divisions if we're going to be able to have a, um, an effective mass movement. So that's definitely, I mean, after after all, uh, the notion that racism is immutable is sort of awkwardly compatible with with biological racism. Well, completely, yeah. I mean, they're two sides of the uh, of the same argument, and you know, a lot of people sort of um, you know, ex students and people in that uh, milieu will talk about, oh, of course, race is socially constructed, but. <laughs> often act in ways that uh, assume its essential nature and characteristic, which I think always has to be um, challenged. And that, to me, it's a, it's a basic sort of um, understanding of how the world uh, and life itself operates, is that things are constantly in flux and, and changing. And um, that includes people's politics, their experience, and their, uh, their political ideas. Um, and if you're not going to do that, then you, you do actually have to articulate uh, what your plan is for taking on um, the political and economic uh, establishment and status quo, um, because it can't just be uh, – we, we can't actually just organize on the basis of rhetoric. Uh, we, we actually have to organize on the basis of politics and, and ideas uh, and what can mobilize the greatest number uh, of people and understanding that um, for me at least, and I think for uh, many socialists, or at least it should be, that uh, in the United States, if you don't have anti-oppression, anti-racist politics um, uh, around gender oppression, race, ethnicity, at the center of your organizing, there will be no movement. Um, because that, that, the way you doing that means that, uh, you're challenging racism, uh, and trying to raise the political level of, uh, uh, white people who are involved in a particular struggle. 
but also demonstrating um, the seriousness that uh, we take these issues uh, for um, non-white people. And and so those things have to be, um, to me, those things have to be at the center uh, of organizing. Otherwise, you will just, we'll never even get to um, any discussion about um, mass organizing unless these kinds of politics are, are at the center uh, of that. But we have to talk in terms of what it means to build a mass movement and not these little kind of uh, demonstrations, which can have their place and can have their role, um, but cannot transform the, the United States into the society that we all uh, need and, and want to live in. Kianga, thanks so much for your time. Cool. Thanks. That was great. Kianga Yamada-Taylor is a professor of African-American studies at Princeton and the author of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation from Haymarket Books. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting a new episode every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, engineered by Liza Yeager, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and track us down on iTunes or wherever it is that you find podcasts and subscribe. And also, while you're on iTunes, please do leave us a glowing review. As funny as it sounds, it really does help us get introduced to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. And please find us on Patreon and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks a month is a big help 